Well, though we won't be into the season of Advent officially as a church until next Sunday, this week I'm starting a brief series for Advent on how the Christ is patterned or prefigured or anticipated in the Old Testament and how Jesus is the fulfillment of those patterns. Now, it is common uh, during Advent to show how certain prophecies point to Jesus. I mean, there are many prophecies in Isaiah, for example, that speak directly to him, and we'll read those on our Christmas Eve uh, service. And Luke, who we've been studying for, believe it or not, most of the past year, often makes the case that what Jesus said and did was in direct fulfillment of prophecies, just like those in Isaiah. But it's not just prophecies that point to the Christ. The entirety of the Old Testament finds its meaning and fulfillment in Jesus. And so we shouldn't merely pay attention uh, to those passages that directly speak about the Messiah, though they are obviously and clearly important, but also to those passages that point forward to him in more subtle ways. You know, so, for example, the book of Hebrews argues that Jesus is not merely the end of the prophets because he's the word of God come in the flesh. He is the ultimate prophet. And as our great high priest, he's also the end of the Levitical sacrificial system, too, because he is the only sacrifice we need. Well, this morning, we begin with what is, I'm sure, a familiar text to most of you with Genesis chapter 2, even though we're going to pop in with Genesis 1 some and Genesis 3 as well. Uh, So let's pick it up with verse 4 of Genesis 2, and I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Father God, whom we know through the scriptures and creation, we ask, speak to us in this hour. Show us the wisdom and joy of your ways that we may know what is good and do what is right. Through Jesus Christ, your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and we ask all of this through that same word, Jesus our Lord, in the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, if you pop back to Genesis 1 before getting to Genesis 2, uh, Genesis 1 presents the creation of humanity as a whole, as male and female together, and it's in that initial statement that we first read what is commonly referred to as the cultural mandate. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, previous to the cultural mandate, God had created all living creatures according to their kind and had commanded them to fill particular spaces. So birds for the heavens, fish and the great sea creatures are really, as it kind of indicates, sea monsters for the sea and then animals and creeping things to fill the earth. And they are in turn called to be fruitful and to multiply. Now humans are also obviously creatures. We are also carbon-based life forms that share a good amount of DNA with certain mammals, but humans are uniquely different. First, as Psalm 19 says, all of creation glorifies God. All of creation glorifies God, but humans alone are made in his image. That means when you see a human, you see an image or an icon, almost like a living statue or a living monument of the creator God. So this is partly why there is no need to ever make an image of God. That's the second commandment and why we need look no further than to another person as proof that there is God. But what that also means is is similar to how astronauts planted the flag on the moon, as God intended it, everywhere humans were to go in the world, they naturally brought God's image to bear in those places. That means that humans were intended to glorify an already good world with God's presence. So second, While we're used to thinking of lions as the kings of the jungle, humans alone are given the command to have dominion over what God made and to subdue it, including creatures like lions. To subdue the earth implies that it needed taming in some sense. Now, that doesn't mean that the world was in any sense evil. It simply meant that God intended for humans to go into his creation and to do something with it, or really, as we've already mentioned, to glorify it. So, for example, it's like looking at an untouched tract of land and to imagine what it could be with some, some hard work and good land management, and then setting out to shaping it to that, to that vision. Or it's like how a carpenter can take the raw material of a tree 
and plane it into furniture, or how a sculptor can take a slab of marble and chisel it into the figure of a human or, or something else. Now think of it this way. Bread and wine are glorified versions of grain and grapes. Grain and grapes are good as, as they are, just like trees and slabs of marble are good and beautiful in their own right, but such things, as good as they are, were intended for glorification, that is, for a greater purpose. After all, I seriously doubt anyone's Thanksgiving meal was merely a table full of raw vegetables and fruits. If it was, I'm so sorry. You see, to have a feast of thanks is to glorify what God has given in the abundance of the field and the fruit of the vine by taking what he has given and making something new from it. That's what a casserole is. Now, Genesis 2 indicates that humanity was not initially created as a pair, but as a man alone. And he wasn't put onto the earth like other mammals. He was uniquely created and put into a special place, into a garden made by God. And if you read closely in Genesis 2-7, unlike the other creatures that God spoke into existence, God formed Adam from the ground with his own hands. His name, Adam, is something akin to dirt man, by the way, and it ties him to that ground, and God breathed life into him. Now, this is more a more deliberate or, or intimate creation that implies God taking hold of the ground and forming Adam with his own hands and then coming close to him and breathing his spirit, his life into him. And it's akin to Deuteronomy 34, 6, where God himself buried Moses after Moses' death, and God alone knew where his grave was. God knows his image bearers intimately, and he does not lose track of them. Now, after God created Adam, God planted a garden within the land of Eden, and he placed the man whom he had formed in that garden. That's the language. So, just to be clear, this is sometimes missed as, as we read through this. There is the land of Eden itself, but within that land, to the eastern side of it, is the garden of Eden. And outside of that, so you have garden, then land, outside of that was the world, or you might think of it as the field or the earth or something like that. And a couple of things signal that what God made here with this garden is not like what we think of as, say, a vegetable garden, but rather was a temple or a sanctuary. First, the trees that God places in the midst of that garden later come to be symbolized, symbolized in the tabernacle and the temple and are found in the holy areas where only the priests could go. You see the same thing at work, for example, in Exodus 4, when Moses encounters God's fiery, holy presence in the burning tree on Sinai. It's virtually the same kind of scene that you see with Isaiah in Isaiah 6, when he is ushered into the throne room of God. Second, the language used in Genesis 2.15, that Adam was to work or really guard and keep uh, the garden is the same language used uh, for what the Levitical priests were to do in the tabernacle and temple. They too were to guard and keep the sanctuary of God's presence, and bad things happen when they don't do this according to God's word. 
So Adam was a priest meant to serve the sanctuary of God's presence. Even so, God's intention was that humanity would go forth out from the garden and out from the land of Eden to have dominion and subdue the whole earth. And the mentioning of, say, for example, we read through this quickly, the precious metals and stones, and along with the naming of the animals in Genesis 2 and, and all those various places like Cush and the Tigris and, and all that, they indicate the assumption that they would go out, that this is a kingly, subduing type of work. And in turn, Adam was to return home to the land of Eden, and on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, he was to commune with God in the garden sanctuary. So if you can see this as kind of co-centric circles of sanctuary, land, world, it's, it's a pattern that gets repeated all throughout the Bible. It gets repeated with Israel in terms of tabernacle, promised land, and then the Gentile world around. And Jesus himself repeats the same pattern with the Great Commission of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the world. And so the idea was that humanity would bring God's presence to bear over the whole face of the earth, which is why when you get to the very end of the Bible, with Revelation 21, this is exactly what Jesus has done through his people. There is no more temple because Jesus is the true and better temple. And in turn, the whole world has been glorified by God's presence. So what began as a garden has become a city. So that the initial creation has been subdued and glorified by God through his image bearers. That's the whole movement from Genesis to Revelation. But as God well knew, and what he wanted Adam to learn for himself is that this work of glorification and of subduing could not be done on his own. The creation of Eve is not merely for the sake of reproduction, as some Christians have mistakenly read it, as if woman's only role is to bear a man's child. Now, if that were the case, God would have made Adam and Eve together just as he did with the other mammals. No, the distinction or the distinct creation of Eve gets at the heart of humanity's purpose as image bearers. Verse 20 uses the term helper to describe what Adam lacked, and it doesn't have in mind, again, as some Christians have badly read this, as a servant or a lesser being or like a child who holds the tools for dad while dad does the real work. No, as one scholar argues, the better translation is something akin to ally deliverer. The only other person, for example, described by this term in the Old Testament is God, is God himself. You can find that in Psalm 10 and Psalm 30 and Psalm 54, among other places. Or just think of John 14, 26, where Jesus describes the coming Holy Spirit as the helper. I don't think God is a lesser or servile being in comparison to Adam, and Eve isn't either. This ally will meet what Adam lacks, and as important as reproduction is, I mean, Adam does call his wife Eve because she is the mother of the living, and that is a huge statement. As Paul puts it, even as man is the image of God, woman is the glory of a man. And so the world cannot be glorified by man alone. In verse 21, it says that God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. Now, this is not a post-Thanksgiving carb-loaded nap. 
This is a deep, death-like sleep, like what happened with Abraham and like with Jonah on that boat. So this is a really a death and resurrection type event. So to receive his bride, here's what's in view. So to receive his bride and in turn to glorify the world, Adam had to die. So God, while Adam is in his death sleep, separates Adam into two, taking from his side. It's not merely his rib. That's kind of, well, that is how it got translated from the King James Version. And that word can refer to a rib, but, it, a rib, but it's really his side that's in view. And it's exactly the same action that you see God doing in Genesis 1, where God separated, for example, the light from the darkness or the land from the waters. Only here he was taking hold of Adam and separating him into two distinct parts that are clearly similar, yet different. So like how grain is glorified by taking hold of it and changing it. So humanity was being glorified by being separated into male and female. Now the language of verse 22 is that God literally built the woman as opposed to forming the man. Now this is intentionally clunky language in the Hebrew, and whenever this happens, you really need to pay attention. And this verb is only used in the Bible for the creation of altars and buildings. Now that's, that's an important detail to remember for later, and we're going to come back to that. But just to show you an example, Cain, instead of finding an ally in his wife, so next generation after Adam and Eve, he builds, same verb, a city and names it after his son, Enoch. So instead of receiving God's offer of help and protection and glorification through his wife, he builds something for his own glory. And that action would be repeated all the way up to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And it's telling that humanity still longs to both glorify and to be glorified. And apart from God's Apart from God, these things, instead of being self-giving actions, which to glorify should be a self-giving action, they will always be in service to self. So the basic idea in Genesis 2 then is that from the one man comes two beings, and the two beings then are brought back together to form one flesh. Thus the man's declaration in verse 23 about bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh is literal. That's literally true, even as verses 24 and 25 declare that humanity is a union of diversity. So bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh is literal in the sense that, that Adam and Eve shared the same body, right? Eve came from Adam, even as they were different sexes with different roles and shared in the same commandment to be fruitful and have dominion. So for good reason, as evangelist Keith Daryl recently noted, he said, homosexuality, which denies the other or really rejects God-ordained sexual difference, is the embodiment of our subjectivist and relativist age. You know, it's not a coincidence since, since the 1960s that, that sexual differences have been denied, that women have effectively been encouraged to be eunuchs for the sake of pleasure, and reproduction in children, instead of being a high and glorious calling and gifts from God, have been viewed with disdain and as burdens or distractions from personal fulfillment. That's a satanic fight against humanity. 
Now, in chapter 3, we read about the serpent. There we go. Here comes Satan. We read about the serpent that was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Now, there is so much we could say about the serpent in so little time, but that it was crafty was not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, humans are, or Christians are told by Christ to be crafty at times. It simply meant that this creature had some measure of insight and maturity in a way that Adam and Eve did not at this point. However, that the serpent came from the field, the same area where Cain would soon lure his brother Abel to kill him, indicates that this is an attack. And the attack itself happens within the sanctuary, within the temple, at the very heart of worship at the two trees. So for good reason, then, the serpent addressed his question to the woman. She was not the priest of the garden. She was not charged to guard and keep it. Adam was. Now, clearly, Eve knew God's commandments about the trees. She was not irrational or ignorant, and women are not more easily deceived than men. No, the issue was that she was not the priest. It was not her role to guard and keep the garden, and the serpent knew it. That's why he attacked her. He wanted to see if Adam would step in and do his priestly work. So the serpent's attack really was twofold then. He attacked someone that the priest was supposed to guard by way of role reversal. And two, in turn, he cast doubt about the goodness of God. And so in a role reversal fit for our times, Adam passively and silently stood by and let Eve attempt to do his priestly calling for him. And in turn, Eve was deceived. But as Michael Morales has argued, there's even more to it than this. Adam's failing was that he, as the priest of the sanctuary, did not offer himself as an atonement for his wife's sin. No, instead, he took from his wife's hand and ate with her in rejection of his God. You see, only a human can atone for another human. And Adam, who was set apart as the priest of the sanctuary, was uniquely positioned to offer his life for his bride. And he went away from that path. So while animals were sacrificed at the end of Genesis 3 in order to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness, those sacrifices were insufficient to atone for them and clothe them in glory and righteousness. And so the result of Adam's fall as priest was expulsion from the sanctuary, from the garden and communion with God. And his, his kingly work of dominion and subduing was deeply frustrated, as we have all of us experienced on the daily New life would come through pain and suffering and even death, and in the end, humanity would die and would return to the dust, something that has happened to every single generation since. So with that brief word on, on Genesis 2 and 3 and a little bit of Genesis 1, hopefully you can already start to make connections with the Christ and how it looks forward to him. So while Israel... Itself, if, we, if you just track through the Old Testament, and I, I'm not taking the time to do this, Israel itself is presented as a new Adam of sorts, the firstborn of God, but he's a failed Adam. It's a major theme in the first five books of the Bible. And Solomon, too, is also presented as a new Adam who ultimately fails incredibly badly. 
It's really in the New Testament where we see the connections with Adam to Jesus, to the Christ, really come to the forefront. So, for example, it's with this understanding of Genesis 2 and 3 that Paul in Romans 5 tells us that Jesus is the better Adam and where Adam failed to keep faith with God, where he failed to guard and keep the sanctuary, bringing sin and death into the world, Jesus did keep faith. He did keep faith with God and in turn offered his life as an atoning sacrifice for his bride, crushing the head of the serpent, destroying the barrier guarded by cherubim. Remember that at the end of Genesis 3? You see the cherubim, by the way, show up tabernacle, temple, and in Isaiah's visions. The cherubim are there to keep humanity out. Jesus removes that, that barrier that kept Adam and his offspring from communion with God. This is why, for example, three out of the four Gospels give an account of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, and it comes early. So you ought to be asking, what's going on there? Why in the wilderness? Well, the wilderness, like the field in Genesis 3 and 4, that had become the realm of the serpent, and humanity had been cast out of the garden. So Jesus, as the true Adam, descended from God's throne room, which is the pattern for Eden and tab the tabernacle and the temple. Well, he would descend from the throne room and he would do battle in the heart of the enemy's territory. Remember what he says after Peter makes his huge confession of faith? He says, the gates of hell will not prevail. Do you see the imagery? People think that the gates of, of hell are going out. No, the gates of hell are bracing for the attack. Jesus has come to the enemy's land. They would not be able to withstand his coming kingdom, even as Jesus, in that temptation, faced the same test as Adam. Would Jesus listen to his father alone? Would he trust that how God intended to give him glory and honor in the kingdom, that it was right and it was good? Could he wait on God to give it to him? See, God never gave up on his purposes for humanity, ever and has accomplished them through his better son, Jesus the Christ. But the New Testament doesn't just see Jesus in light of Adam. Jesus teaches his people to see themselves in light of Eve, too. Jesus often describes himself as the bridegroom, a, a role previously described of God in relation to Israel. You see that all throughout the Old Testament. Ezekiel 16 is actually a very vivid example of that. And Jesus describes his church, his people, as his bride. That's how he frames his answer for why his disciples do not fast. In Matthew chapter 9, he's the bridegroom, come for his bride, and you don't fast at weddings. And the same image is at the heart of his parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, a parable that is about the coming of the kingdom of God. Revelation 19 describes the second coming of Christ as the wedding feast of the Lamb. Who does the Lamb who was slain? That's how Revelation 5 refers to him. Who does the Lamb who was slain? Who does he marry? His bride, the church. In turn, Revelation 21 describes the coming New Jerusalem, the holy city of God, where God and his people dwell together as the bride, as the wife of the Lamb. Now, do you remember that clunky Hebrew language that was used for the creation of Eve, right? She was built 
Well, the new Jerusalem, the city of God, where God and his people dwell together, his wife was built just as Eve was built. The new Jerusalem is a new and better Eve, a faithful bride that comes from the Son, the helper of the Christ, who, like Eve, was built by God and is the shimmering glory of the Lamb. That's who we are. That's how we are to understand ourselves in light of Christ. Even in gatherings small like ours, that's how you should understand yourself because it's how God understands you. But this isn't just beautiful, genius-level literary brilliance, though it is, it is certainly that. These connections between Adam and Eve and Christ and his church have real practical implications for us. And I'm, I'm going to highlight just two of them. First, the first comes from, from Paul's instruction in Ephesians 5 about husbands and wives in their everyday daily lives and how they reflect the reality of the son laying down his life for his bride and in turn how the wife is the glory of her husband. Christian marriages are intended to be real, tangible symbols of how God through his son, the true Adam, laid down his life for his bride, atoned for her sin, is sanctifying her through the spirit and is glorifying her. And in turn, the bride is learning to live in submission to the father, even as Christ was submissive to the father. You know, the Catholics make a grave error in saying marriage is a sacrament, but they make that error because they see how deeply important it is and how deep it really goes. The distinctions and roles of husbands and wives are not trivial, and they are not exchangeable. You know, women cannot be priests, and men cannot give birth, even as marriage is not just some social construct as our, our modern culture sees it. Marriage, as God intended it, finds its meaning and grounding in Christ himself and participates in what God is doing through his Son to redeem the world. So a husband loves his wife as Christ loved his people, guarding and keeping her by self-sacrifice and dying for her bodily if necessary, but certainly dying to self. And just as Eve came from Adam's own body, so a husband loves his wife as he loves his own body. So any man who hates his wife is a fool and does damage unto himself and has no place calling himself a Christian because Christ loves his wife who came from him. Likewise, women have the high and the noble calling, difficult calling, of respecting their husbands as Christ submitted to his Father. And should God give her children, she too gets to participate in the giving of new life in a way that no man can ever do. It's why at Christian weddings, even as the husband is the head of the wife, which doesn't mean he dominates her or is a tyrant or gets to make every decision, but rather is more like the source of her strength, like the headwaters of a river. Eve came from Adam. The bride is the glory of her husband. Husbands rightly commit to their wives first, even as they glorify their brides and long for them to shimmer. As my father-in-law rightly put to me before my wedding, and I was offended when he said it, but he was right. He said, boy, you better see yourself as the parsley because she is the glory. And he was right. That's how Christ sees his bride. If you've ever seen a groom in awe of his bride, 
then you rightly understand how Christ sees his people. So while it is clear that Paul understands marriage in light of Genesis 2 and 3, it's also clear, as John shows in his revelation, that the ordering of history from Genesis 2 onward is bound up with the lamb and his bride as well. That's my second and final thing I'm going to say. The movement of world history is the movement of God glorifying his people through his son and taking back all of creation just as he first commanded humanity to do with that cultural mandate of Genesis 1. So if marriage is one of the most important arenas for how God has called humanity to have dominion and to subdue the earth, it is through his bride, the church, that the son works to glorify and sanctify the world. So for good reason then, Satan often attacks the bride of Christ head on, just as he attacked Eve in the garden. And it's evidenced by false pastors and elders that either abuse the church as wolves or fail to guard and keep the sanctuary from wolves, most often through false teaching and false doctrines. But like with Eve, Satan often calls into question the goodness or the necessity of God's people. And so his attack against the bride is often a temptation away from the goodness of communion with God. As one commentator put it, the great mistake Christians ask these days is, what is the purpose of my life? Instead of asking, what is the purpose of life? The first question puts me at the center of my life and makes me and my desires the central driving force of my life. The second question puts God at the center of all life and forces me to find my place within what he is doing and what he has ordained. And right from Genesis 1 and 2, Scripture tells us that God intends us to center our lives on communion with him in the sanctuary, with his people together, that's worship. Then we are to go out from the sanctuary and have dominion and subdue the earth in light of him, that's our work, and in turn to make our home in the land that he has given us with the family he has given to us. That's it. That's it. Humanity's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever through the ordering of the world that he has given to us. Whatever job you get, in a certain sense, that's on you. You have freedom in that. These things are the things by which you order your life. So while most Christians recognize that their marriages should, at least in some sense, reflect Christ, and in turn, they should approach their job somewhat as Christians anyway, at least some of the Ten Commandments should be in view. They often treat the bride of Christ as optional, if not supplemental, and this is a disastrous mistake. Almost always, Satan attacks worship first. That is exactly what he did to the people of God once they came out of sin and death in Egypt. He attacked them right at the heart of their relationship with God, and it's akin to a man you know, who wears a wedding ring, has pictures of his family at work, but chooses to come home, I don't know, every four to six weeks. Major holidays. At some point, you have to ask, is that guy actually married? Well, in name only. And the reality is, if a person does not center his life on worship together with God and his bride, then that person's marriage and his work will not be rightly ordered either. They just won't. Well, as Revelation 19 and 21 make clear, the future of the world belongs to the bride of Christ. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth.
And so to take the bride lightly or to even reject the bride is to disdain her husband, the Christ who has glorified her and who has atoned for her. The end of the world as we know it. The end of the world as we know it will not come through a nuclear holocaust or any version of the climate change apocalypse complete with zombies. It will come as a wedding. I want you to think about that. The end of the world comes as a wedding. And it will be glorious. So let us not forsake the bridegroom and the joy of knowing him together with his bride. Because what we do in this moment is with the grain of the universe. And it's not merely practice. It is participation for the life to come that is good and glorious. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are so good that you sent forth your Son to lay down his life, the better Adam, the one who is the true priest, the true keeper and guardian of the sanctuary, the one who has crushed the head of the servant, serpent, and from him we have life, from him we exist as his bride and as his church. Thank you for this gift of life. Thank you for these simple orderings of our lives that give so much freedom and meaning and depth that look forward to what is coming in that glorious wedding day. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.